Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. A call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 19, verse 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. This proverb just goes to show that we are inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. This proverb is akin to the book of Ecclesiastes. God keeps us busy in all of vanity and we are full of ideas. We are constantly planning this and planning that. We like to devise means for our advancement and further dominion in this world. We are constantly go, go, going. And every day, we take another stab at achieving our ends. There are many plans in our hearts. But we should stop and take note before we waste our energy. God is in heaven, and his ways are concrete. His plans do not shift and move. Our proverb last week taught us that we need to listen to counsel and to receive instruction in order to acquire wisdom. But our proverb this week tells us where we need to go for the counsel and instruction. The Lord's counsel that will stand. Solomon describes all of life as temporary and passing in Ecclesiastes. But at the end, he commands us to fear God and keep his commandments. The whole story of the Old Testament is that we can't do that. The gospel is that Jesus gives us the power to do it by doing it in and through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus Paul tells us in the New Testament that our work in the Lord is not vain. The point of Ecclesiastes is that men will keep making plans. It's in our nature. The point of this proverb is that if those plans are not in accordance with the Lord's counsel, they are wasted effort. This is an exhortation to study the Lord's counsel. Our duty is to live according to his ways. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel as we confess our sins. Just to remind you where we're at in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon opened the book with an argument that Men are subject to vanity. Men have no ultimate gain out of their own innate goodness in this life. The best they can do is turn to God. Then Solomon started his second argument with a statement of faith that God is sovereign over time and the times of our lives. God makes everything beautiful and fitting in its time. And he does it that men may fear before him. Last week we started the second section of this argument where Solomon interacted with objections to God's sovereignty. In one sense or another, or another all of these objections are some form of the problem of evil. 
Last week we covered the evils of injustice, death, and oppression in this life. Today we pick up where we left off last week. Our text is Ecclesiastes 4, 4 to 16, and Solomon will be recognizing the evils of envy, laziness, loneliness, and the emptiness of popularity or fame. As you will see, Solomon is very concerned with instructing us about the evils found in human community. We'll start in verse 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Here we see the objection that men struggle with envy. How can God be sovereign? And how can a man believe Solomon's advice from chapter 3, verse 22, where Solomon said, Nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. How can, that, how can someone accept that advice when what his work does is it, it makes his neighbors envious? There's a contrast between two men here, the hard worker and the guy who's looking over the fence. This is a major problem for human community. First, consider the honest, hard laborer. Here's a man who toils and does skillful work, and yet he's despised for his diligence and talent. The other guys on the crew talk about him behind his back, or they ridicule him to his face. They may even hinder his progress intentionally, getting in the way of his progress. Their smallness is a burden he must bear. And life isn't fair. Next, consider the envious neighbor. The proverb tells us that envy is rot rottenness to the bones. Envy makes men discontent. For the guy who is motivated to work by envy, there's never quite enough. He's always striving to climb the ladder of success. And every benchmark he attains is immediately forgotten and the green-eyed monster rears its ugly head again. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Somebody else has always got it better. There's always somebody else to envy. And even if nobody else really has got it better, he still wants more. Envy drove Ahab, the king of Israel, to kill Naboth for his vineyard. And envy drove Solomon's father to steal his mother from her first husband and have him murdered. Third, envy even is even worse, sorry, even worse than the discontented worker is the, light, the lazy man's envy. This guy wants to get something for nothing and he feels a sense of entitlement. Verse five, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. This is the proverb about the lazy man who won't work, and justice is that he shouldn't eat. When he gets hungry enough, his own arm will start to look mighty tasty. Even in our wealthy society, this is the case. When fools won't work, even in protected environments, ultimately it will catch up with them. Wickedness will eventually fall flat because wealth flows to the diligent 
and the fool is left holding the short end of the stick. Of course, this won't stop him from looking down at what's left of his arm and accusing his neighbor of, for his suffering. Envy is bad for community. In verse 6, we read Solomon's reaction to these evils. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. Basically, Solomon is saying that there's a difference between working to live and living to work. In contrast with the lazy fool, the quietness referred to here is not the quietness of sleeping through harvest. This is the peaceful rest that's available to the diligent at the close of a hard workday. Second, the workday has a close. There's an end to his labor. There is a miser out there who is all work and no play, and he's in a bad place. If work is vain anyway, how much more vain is it when the work, the fruit of that work is never even enjoyed? Solomon's instruction to the evil of envy and laziness is be satisfied with your work. And don't exhaust yourself for the vanity of more than you need or can handle. Remember Ecclesiastes 3 verse 14. God does it that men should fear before him. God does everything so that we can learn to fear him. The problem of envy and laziness is not God's problem. The struggles of the envious and the lazy are the hard lessons they need to learn. They need to receive what God gives them with joy and contentment and accept it and be happy with that. Verses 7 and 8 instruct us on the vanity of loneliness. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. This fellow is in a very sad state. Solomon calls his situation a grave misfortune. It could also be translated as an evil task. He's working so hard, and yet he's piling up all this wealth, and he has nobody to share it with, nobody to even give it to, nobody to eat his meal with. And the sad thing is that he never even stops to consider how sad his own plight is. His focus is so much on doing what he does, and he never stops to ask, why do I do what I'm doing? We've talked a bit about vanity so far in this series, and Solomon is usually talking about the, the vaporousness of life, or the temporary nature of it. But here, it really has the meaning of pointlessness and meaninglessness. This miser has no point. The problem is that the lonely guy never learned the lesson of Genesis 2, 
where God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that man should be alone. Loneliness is a very real problem in our world. There are lonely people all over the place. People who feel abandoned and outcast. Sick people, shut-ins. People who've pushed everyone out of their lives for whatever reasons. And these people have nobody and nobody has them. They're sad and they're lonely and God didn't make men to live that way. How can God be sovereign when men suffer from loneliness? Solomon's answer is forthcoming, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon simply states that we need to find a friend. We need to live in community. Two are better than one. Companions are a blessing. They help each other through the tough times, through the falls or the cold. They defend each other and they protect one another. God designed men to live in community. Here Solomon has fleshed out his instructions that he gave us that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. Men should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all their labor, but if they're going to be able to do that, they must do it in community. Evil exists in the world. If we don't have each other, if we don't have a friend to help us out, if we don't have somebody there to enjoy the good that God gives us with us, then it's empty. So Solomon is here fleshing out that if we're going to eat and drink and enjoy the good of our labor, we must do that in the, in the presence of companions, with friends. Notice the numbers here in chapter 4. In verses 1 to 3, we, we covered them last week, Solomon concluded that because of oppression, the dead are better off than the living, and it's better never to have existed. He's saying that zero is better than one. In verses 4 to 6, because of envy and laziness, one is better than two. At least you're not picked on for doing your job. At least nobody's looking over the fence. In verses 7 through 12, because of the emptiness of loneliness, two and three are better than one. Community and companionship are one of the things that make a difference in the world. One of the, the things that God created, that there are goods that God created in the world that actually limits the vanity of life on the earth. There's a shadow of redemption in loving your neighbor as yourself. This is probably the closest thing that people who don't know God, who don't have Jesus Christ, have 
to an innate to an innate understanding that we should love those around us and seek to build community. The closest thing that they have to truth is is recognizing the good of community. And this is why many people who don't know God invest themselves in humanitarian things. They're investing themselves in community, and they're seeking to find meaning in life. Of course, though two and three are better than one, we're, we're just about to find out that it doesn't matter how many you add up, in the end, it's all vanity. We, we still need God. In verses 13 to 16, we read, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over him, over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The final objection to God's sovereignty is the fickleness of community. The fickleness of fame and human glory. These verses serve as a warning to leaders. Men who are in positions of power need to take caution that they don't find their own worth in their position. Because their position is temporary. The world runs on cycles. And one of the cycles is the transition from leader to leader, from one fad to the next, from one popular thing to the next popular thing. The crowds will follow their whims. When one man is popular, it's only a matter of time till either he falls in scandal and disgrace or a younger, smarter, more flashy guy takes his place. Also, Solomon knows that it is only a matter of more time before that same lesson needs to be learned by the new recruit. Popularity, kingdoms, is temporary. These verses teach us that wisdom isn't surprised by the rising and falling of leaders or movers and shakers. This truth is not bound to the realm of politics. It is true in politics. I mean, we go from one president to the next president. Sometimes the Republicans are in the lead, and other times it's the Democrats. When I was growing up, you never heard of independents. Now they're all we talk about when the time comes to, to vote. But this is also true in business. When the horseless carriage was invented, people thought that'll never take off. And now we drive cars all over the place. And we've, I mean, and even among cars, one car will be in the lead and then the next one. It'll be uh, Ford, GM, or it'll be uh, Ferrari or Porsche. There, there's always a constant surging ahead of one over the other. But whoever's at the top, it's only a matter of time until somebody else replaces them. It's true in, the, in computers. Microsoft, now Apple, who's next? Uh, the technology, we went from Walkman, you know, we used to carry those tape 
players, and then we got Discman, you know, and then we, so we had CDs we could kid listen to, and then we have MP3s, and they're so tiny, you just it's like you're not even wearing anything. It goes on and on and on. It, there's always a new fad, something that's going to replace. You know, so this this is important for businessmen. The entertainment industry. Uh, Movie stars, it's always newer, somebody newer, somebody younger, somebody who's fresh, somebody who's, who's going to, uh, to, to change everybody's focus to them. And everybody wants their, their, their 15 minutes of fame. But it's passing. And today we don't even recognize the people who were famous in the 30s. You, you could Google it. You could go on Wikipedia and look at, you could read about it, but if I just mentioned one of them to you, who, what? You'd have to do that. You'd have to do research to find it. It's true in ministry. One pastor comes and he, and God blesses him and he does well, and at the end of his course, he's replaced by the next one. There is a glory for the people who are in charge. It's, it's, a, it's a relative glory, and it's a good thing. It's a blessing from God. Um, there's, 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 there are advantages to driving the ship. If, if we elect more righteous people into office, it's a good thing for us, as, as the people who live underneath that, that headship. But, but there's not ultimate salvation in it. The old king got stale and he passed on. And a, a new, young, wise youth takes his place. But his life will be gone before he knows it. And in the end, it's all vanity. So wisdom says that we should be patient to see what God is doing. We need to know that God is the one who's ordaining the times because it's vain to get caught up in the winds of cultural shift. And by caught up, I mean if you're devastated because your candidate didn't win the election this year, you're a little caught up in that. <laughs> Don't put your trust in men or in horses. Put your trust in God. Trust that God is in control, and even in the midst of all the vanity and the evil in the world, He gives you good gifts, and He gives you the power to enjoy them. So in conclusion, we do see from our text today that there is evil in human community, or the lack of it. The fall brought sin and evil into the world, and this evil makes our communities anemic. There's a lot to be desired in human community because of sin. But there is an answer to our problems. Jesus came to show us the way. An answer to the vanity of leadership, of kings that come and go, of who do you put your faith in? Jesus shows us what it is to lead with humility. And Jesus died and was raised again from the dead so that he will never die again. Jesus is the king who broke the cycle. He truly is the servant 
king. He showed us what it means to live and to reign with humility. He was God. He came, became a man. He's, he, he worked among the poor and the needy, those who were hungry for righteousness and truth and salvation. And Jesus was God. And he came and he lowered himself down to that position. But he wasn't sullied by that. Instead, he lifts men up to his glory. Jesus is our king. And our focus needs to be on him because he will never go away. His kingdom is established and being established. We now have faith in a human king who is perfect and will never let us down. So in answer to the vanity of the, the ups and downs of culture and leadership, all we need to do is turn to Jesus. Because he doesn't grow old the way that other leaders do. He makes everything new. In answer to the vanity and the emptiness and the pain and the suffering of loneliness, Jesus gives us first himself. He died to be our friend, to reconcile himself, God, to us. He dealt with the sin that was dividing our relation, breaking up our relationship. He gives us himself. Then he sends us his spirit. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He, he reveals himself to our hearts so that we know we are not alone here. Even in the times that seem the most despondent, Jesus is here with us. He's suffering with us. Jesus suffered loneliness. He knew what it was to be alone. But then, more than that, he gives us a community. He gives us the church. He places us in the body. And he instructs us in, in how to alleviate the suffering of others. He sends us to those who are suffering loneliness. He sends us to the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. Our loneliness is very much a product of our sin. Because of our broken relationship with God, we are lonely. And because of that, our fellowship with men is anemic. But Jesus dealt with our sins so that we can have a rich and full relationship with God and through that with each other. So Jesus shows us how we can live in community. In answer to the evils of envy and laziness, Jesus nailed those to the cross, and he left us with a command to love one another in their place. Jesus takes the selfishness that drives these sins, and he replaces it with a selflessness by giving us his spirit. Jesus' love cleanses and beautifies us, and by Jesus' love, God makes all the wrongs right. He makes everything beautiful in its time through Jesus' love so that we might fear him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Jesus 
is the answer to the problem of evil in community. When he sent his spirit at Pentecost and established the church by his disciples, he established a glorious community. In Acts 2, we read about this community. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice a couple of things here. First, the church lived with each other. Daily, they broke bread together. Second, they were characterized by gladness. The gospel brings joy. Third, they were simple at heart. Their praise was genuine. And it flowed out of the free grace of God's forgiveness. It was true gratitude. Fourth, their disposition and generosity brought them the favor of the people. This is because against the fruits of the Spirit, there is no law. And finally, the Lord blessed them with growth for their faithfulness. The church is a vibrant community because in the gospel, God destroyed the roadblocks of community and paved the way for rich koinonia fellowship. All of the new believers in Jerusalem were witnesses of the great things. They saw miracles and knew the invigorating nature of the newness of Christ's kingdom. But the glory of Christ is that he is God. And in his creative nature, he is continually making everything new again. And because he is head of the church, the church is not a stagnant thing. It is the bride of Christ. And his love is continuing to cleanse it and make it beautiful. Part of that process is this meal, where we come each week and are fed and nourished by the blood of Christ and his body by faith. He is making us new again, cleansing us and preparing us to live by his grace, reminding us of the sacrifice he made for our benefit. Christ's body broken for us. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.